Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 11th, 2022, earlier today. An interesting show with a University of Virginia scientist, James Zimring, uh, Partial Truths, How Fractions Distort Our Thinking. Zimring suggested that we use partial truths to vindicate ourselves, perhaps make ourselves feel better. We use uh, fractions of one kind or other, mathematics, to support our versions of the world. That's what being human is. It makes us feel better. We like, of course, good stories. We like stories that reflect well on us. Um, Tomorrow, I'm talking with Andrew Leon Hanno, who has a new book out, 25 Million Sparks, a story of refugee entrepreneurs, highly altruistic entrepreneurs who reflect the best in the human condition. Um, One wonders whether there are general rules about these things, about whether indeed we are altruistic or whether we use theories of science to promote our versions of the truth. My guest today, I think, believes that we are indeed good. We are altruistic. Uh, Her name is Stephanie D. Preston. She has a new book out, The Altruistic Urge, Why We're Driven to Help Others. And she's joining me from her office in Michigan today. Stephanie, welcome to Keenon. Stephanie, um, I don't want to pigeonhole you, of course, uh, but you seem to think that uh, we are, by definition, uh, as creatures, altruistic. Is that fair? Well, um, yes and no. I'd say I do think people have um, an innate capacity to be altruistic in specific situations. And when you're not in that situation, a whole lot else has to support the behavior. Is altruism something that you admire? Is it something that warms your heart? <laughs> well, I think that one thing that happens is when you study altruism, people feel like they have to take sort of a glass half full, half empty approach to humanity. Like you're either mostly good or mostly bad. And the, the goal of the book is to cut through that and to say scientifically, you know, when we're good and when we're bad based on our evolutionary heritage as social mammals. Right. So you interpret us in that evolutionary sense. I'm not sure if you would describe yourself as Darwinian. You're certainly an evolutionary behavioral scientist. You run the Ecological Neuroscience Lab at your university, and it's premised on figuring us out. What have you found about us in your uh, in your lab, in your ecological neuroscience lab, Stephanie, that, uh, that, that will make us believe that at least in certain conditions, we are indeed altruistic. <laughs> well, um, you know, we have done um, dozens, if not hundreds of studies in the lab on empathy and on altruism. And You know, in the days of a replication crisis in psychology, I think it's important to hang your hat on the kinds of things you find regularly, right, that are easy to find. Um, Because those are, you know, we didn't have to twist people into getting a result we wanted. So, for example, 
we find that people are very easily impacted by the emotions of other people that they observe. So, you know, my face muscles will mi mimic the facial expression I see in you. Even if it's not like a big visible display, you can measure it with electrodes on the face. People feel sad when they see a sad person. They feel happy when they see a happy person. You know, they give money willingly in the lab and every study, you know, there's always a distribution with some people giving zero, some people giving everything, but the vast majority of people give something, if not everything. So um, it's very easy to demonstrate. What do you mean the, the vast lab. majority of people give everything? You've, you've got no, I your... Said some, I said something, if not everything. Oh, uh, okay. So more I mean, you've than got your, your ecological neuroscience lab. My ecological neuroscience lab, maybe it's slightly less formal than yours, is the United States of America. There doesn't seem to be a lot of altruism here. It's a country of enormous cruelty and lack of sympathy. So uh, wh why do we even need a lab to figure out our altruism? Why don't you look in society? Because you don't see a lot of it in society, do you? Well, that's not quite true, actually. I, I, I think America is probably the largest um, philanthropic and volunteer donor of any country. So there are certainly many, many shortcomings in our culture. And the book describes the conditions under which you can draw out our capacity versus when it's very difficult to get people to give. And so people are even quite capable of being intentionally cruel. And that's, you know, evolved also. And it's part of this neural circuit that is adaptive on the whole, but produces some really unfortunate circumstances and even horrible circumstances at times. I know you, you study humans like other animals and you 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 lose a, you use a lot of um sort of evolutionary theories to make sense of us we've done a number of shows on other animals we did one with the naturalist Cy montgomery recently on what hawks can teach us they certainly she didn't seem to think they could teach us any kind of morality they do teach us uh, a certain fierceness and sense of love another scientist jackie higgins believes that animals tell us something about our senses. But you're not a sensory scientist. You're looking at something else, aren't you, in terms of figuring out our altruism of what makes us tick? Well, I'm um, a neuroscientist, so it is a sensory science in some ways because my response to you or to plight or to victims is dependent on the way I perceive the situation, uh, not just psychologically or subjectively but like at the level of the brain you know what do i observe in the world what do i pay attention to what do i orient to what do i care about you know how does it impact me emotionally when i observe it these are, are sort of like sensory issues because you know that's how we view the world but um you know primarily i study how the brain itself evolves and it doesn't change as much over time as people like to think. You know, the human brain is much, much bigger, but you know, like proportionally, some species have bigger brain areas relative to size than we do. And we still have the same basic architecture as even rodents. And so, you know, you can learn a lot about the brain and how it evolved by doing a comparative look across species and see what are these profound commonalities such as you know, how these neurohormones make us sensitive to offspring or to other individuals, that type of thing. 
Uh, yeah, we, we've done, as I said, a lot of shows about what animals can teach us. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Carl Safina. Um, he uh -huh. believes that even sort of humility, uh, a form of morality, and he develops this in his book, Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty and Achieve Peace. It seems as if you're coming at things slightly differently from Safina, who's perhaps less of a neuroscientist and more of a naturalist, but you're coming away with similar conclusions to Safina about our love of family and of nurturing and of respect for others. Is that fair? Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with that. Um, I guess the only benefit to me when I study the brain is you can you can more easily tell how the circuitry can be shifted from you know, one domain to another, like, do I approach you? Do I avoid you? Am I scared? Am I concerned? You know, like there's these bifurcations, as you noted in our behavior between being very good and not very good. And, you know, when you study the brain, you can figure out why, you know, the neural system evolved to create this bifurcation intentionally, not just as like a sad, you know, commentary on our human nature. Are you arguing as a neuroscientist that the brain is the, 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 the master motor, the defining thing in us that shapes everything else? Is, is your focus on the brain uh, because you believe that it leads the rest of us as, as creatures, the, the rest of our, our instincts? So for example, um, people often talk about the heart. I assume for you, the heart is simply a mechanism of the brain. Well, it's definitely connected <laughs> and it does definitely impact us, you know, like things that come from your body are detected, you know, in your brain and then they influence your decision making. But so, why doesn't it go the other way? I mean, again, I, I know this is a rather <laughs> silly question. I'm not a neuroscientist, but but why why couldn't you have a science of the heart and suggest that the brain is shaped by the heart? Well, go ahead and try. <laughs> we'll see how it goes i have chosen this particular route because i do know a lot about the brain and we know a lot about how it evolved over time and um i am also interested in like how it works at the level of the mechanism because you know like philosophically you can make a lot of stances but that doesn't mean even if it's logically consistent that it's how it actually works so in order for me to be able to promote you know, the brighter side of humanity in our work, I need to be able to know how the machine works, not just, um, you know, what I think about us and what my what logical argument I might be able to make. I, ne I need to know how the machine works in order to perturb it and know why it went wrong in the way it did. And for example, you know, developmental disorders or personality disorders or, you know, cases of great cruelty. Fit this in with the traditional theories of evolution, of course, Darwin, who believed in this idea of, of competition. How, how does the wiring of the brain in terms of its tendency to make us more altruistic, how does that benefit us? How does that, um, how does that um, compound our, the likelihood of our, our survival of our of our um, search for power. 
Well, I would say in the book, I lean very heavily on inclusive fitness and kin selection, which um, Darwin talked about, but were made more famous by Trivers and Hamilton. But in this case, you know, the success of your offspring is determining the degree to which your genes get passed on into future generations in the way that Darwin described. And so you have to have these very powerful and like not easy to perturb neural and hormonal systems to be able to attend to these helpless offspring, especially in an altricial species where you want so much brain development to take place after birth to allow all this extra plasticity, all this extra growth. You know, so this extended period, period which, which, which they call altricial, is um, requiring of us like this very um, intense period of care. And so the neural mechanisms and the hormonal mechanisms and the behavioral mechanisms to ensure that works out is part of a evolutionary, you know, kin selection process where the people who do a better job protecting and, you know, nurturing their offspring end up doing a little better in the future generations. And that makes it also like a very strong, powerful system. It's not so easily, um, you know, altered by situations that are irrelevant. Stephanie, we've done lots of shows on empathy. Um, again, it's I, we, we've done so many shows, I call it the E word. Uh -huh. um, did one with the uh, business writer Susan McKenty Brady about female leadership qualities. We also did one, one of the, the great thinkers on empathy is the MIT um, technologist Sherry Turkle. Um, on, uh, she, she has a new autobiography out, The Empathy Diaries, in which she warns us about teaching machines to be empathetic. Given your theories of neuro neuroscience, does that make empathetic robots more or less likely? Uh, there's a wonderful new book out on empathy and machines called Clara and the Sun. Where do you stand on on our ability as humans to fashion machines that reflect us and bring out our, our, our best qualities like empathy? Well, I think that's a good question. It's like a two-sided coin. On the one hand, when you know... All coins are two-sided, Stephanie. Ah, <laughs> very good point. Um, thank God you're here. Um, you know, if on the one hand, you didn't know about empathy and our, you know, intensely social and empathic nature, you might inadvertently create an AI or a robot that's like, you know, infuriating to people or unattractive to people or, you know, that people just won't engage with, right? Like, so it's beneficial to know about our capacities and tendencies and pre preferences um, in that regard. However, because we are actually so good at this, because we are so astute at reading people's emotions and knowing when they're genuine, knowing when they're fake, it's very difficult to cross that bar in AI from not believable to believable. And sometimes not believable isn't just a failure to believe, it's actually like offensive or irritating. Um, you know, like, do you remember the, um, such and such company made a paperclip that was in my Word document that <laughs> was widely disregarded um, and quickly disappeared, you know, like, and so people are yelling at their, you know, smartwatches because 
they don't like the way it talks to them and the way it is able to make answers. So it's that kind of thing where you want to try to seek some balance where, you know, you're making people feel comfortable and saying nice things to them, but you're not trying to replicate a human until you really know you got the tech capable. You don't focus on AI, you focus on real humans in your book. One of the people you write about is a man called Wesley Autry. Many people will know him, many of our viewers and listeners will know him as the Subway Samaritan, the Subway Superman, the man who jumped, I think, in front of a train to uh, save um, someone who fell on the tracks. Um, Obviously, you use Autry as an example of the empathetic, unselfish human but I wonder, I saw a headline today about a passenger with, from the Washington Post, a passenger with no idea how to fly lands a plane after a pilot emergency. But you could use that argument both to suggest they're empathetic and altruistic, but also that they're determined to save their own skin. So at what point does one stop and the other begin? Well, it's obvious if the plane's going to crash, you know, if there's anything you can do to help, why not try it, right? But, yeah, but then they get heroized. Also- Remember that guy who landed the plane on the Hudson, Sully, yes, and he got Sully. sort of transformed yeah. into the, the quintessentially altruistic figure when he was probably just trying to save his own life. That's an interesting case because you're right. They called him a hero. And usually heroism is a subcategory of altruism. But you're right. Like, that's a that's a tricky case. In Wesley Autry's case, there was no reason he needed to get involved, right? He was just a onlooker on the platform and a young boy, a young man fell in after having a seizure and, you know, nobody else besides him jumped in and got involved. There, n- nothing really besides the distress of seeing somebody get killed by a train, you know, would have happened to him. And he did f- for sure imperil his own life. There was only like a half inch margin between where their heads were and where the train passed over. So, you know, he made a very quick and it turns out accurate calculation, but everybody else made the calculation that I'm not going to get involved because I don't know if I can do it. Right. And so in the altruistic urge, I emphasize over and over and over again that you can't just say people feel bad or they feel empathy or they feel sympathy. There's also this like very immediate motor um, calculation that goes on in your brain where you can predict quickly and fairly accurately if you're going to be able to intervene and succeed, right? And so one of the reasons people are so bad at intervening and they're often bystanders is because they don't feel confident. They're not sure what to do. They're not sure they're going to succeed. They don't sh- they're not sure it's going to work. Maybe they're being manipulated, right? So there's There's all these factors that make them unsure they're going to succeed. But in Wesley Autry's case, you know, he had some expertise from his job that he applied in this situation. And, you know, he was able to make a quick and an accurate prediction. But I want to clarify that altruism doesn't have to be completely selfless. If it were, it would never have evolved or, you know, been maintained in the gene pool, I think. It's important not to denigrate good acts, even if it turns out they have some benefit back to the person later, because biologically it should have a benefit. Otherwise, it makes no sense why you would do it. You mentioned that we are intensely social animals. I don't think there's any debate about that. You focus on the brain, which presumably is a a social mechanism too. But I wonder how this 
in all seriousness, tra translates into politics. Um, we did a show on David Graeber's ideas, his posthumous book, The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity, presents us collectively, not in Hobbesian or even in Rousseauan terms, but perhaps more in the context of your notion of altruism. Why is altruism, though, in political terms, in terms of society, why is it fairly rare? Why are most societies, it would seem, particularly in political terms, why are they missing that core altruistic element? It doesn't mean that people aren't altruistic, but most societies are not dominated by altruism. Most contemporary societies are unequal, uh, made up of some people with a great deal of power, some without. I mean, we did a show, for example, recently on Davos Man, on how there's a tiny group of people with many billions of dollars, the Elon Musks and Jeff Bezoses of the world, who run everything. They give some of their money away to make themselves feel better, but they're not building altruistic societies. Well, I think I would give a little bit of pushback on that because, for example, any instance in which you engage, engage in like contributing to the common good can be considered an act of altruism, even though it has a benefit back to you, right? Like, so, you know, having this alliance of nations that work together isn't particularly like selfish or singular. And, you know, any contributions into a common pool, like in taxation, even though Americans are, you know, like roundly- Nobody wants to pay tax here. We do, but we do pay taxes, though. It's just we have the to because is... otherwise we we'll, we'll get into trouble. But nobody actually wants to pay taxes, or very few people want to pay taxes. We've looted, I think that, we've that's public space. I mean, I don't think that's true because everybody is perfectly aware that Democrats are more interested in taxation than conservatives. But conservatives don't win every time. People just try and balance it out by kind of alternating between these regimes in, in order to like pay taxes, but, you know, oh, but not too much, right? But I agree with you. I think in America, the super rich dominating political forces is what most concerns me because you can't get rid of inequality if those people are the ones who are deciding elections by and large, you know, with large donations and um, friendships and things like that. Stephanie, what happens when you have these rival conceptions of altruism? Take, for example, the abortion issue, which is dominating the public discussion in America this week. Both sides claim to be good. Both sides claim to be representing human life, one in terms of saving babies, one in terms of respecting the rights of the mothers. Um, how do you make sense of that in your altruistic urge? Uh, when when you have entirely different arguments, both claiming to be altruistic and both rejecting the humanity of the other side, as the Republicans and Democrats do, particularly on the, on the abortion issue. All right. I kind of like Jonathan Haidt's take on this, where, you know, there's goodness and value and generosity on both sides. Just the focus of that effort is different. And there's like stable states where... You know, it appears that people on the left are more concerned about outgroups and they're more tolerant and, you know, they're more worried about equity and justice, whereas people on the right are more concerned about the in-group and family 
and you know preserving the status quo and maintaining a hierarchy so like they both have values and you can see how both of these values are sort of imbued in us through evolution but um you know for whatever reason people end up leaning harder on one kind of stable state or the other and then you know warring factions i don't know maybe it's just because we force them to have two parties that it becomes so simplistic you might be able to inform us as a from a parliamentarian nation um the the, the altruistic notion which is rooted in us is it historic we did a show uh, a couple of months ago with a British philosopher, Roman Krasnarich, about how to be a good ancestor. It's particularly, I think, relevant in terms of the environment, in terms of, of leaving a planet which is more diseased, more rotten than, than we found it. Uh, how does altruism play out over time? Can we, does our brain, enable, or should or can our brain enable us to think beyond ourselves to a world which we're no longer part of? I think that's actually a really good um, tack to take in the environmental case because it might supersede these partisan politics, right? So Elkie Weber at, um, well, Princeton now, I suppose, she did some studies showing that people were more likely to be willing to contribute to um, you know, the environment even at a cost to themselves if it was highlighted that it had this intergenerational impact. And, you know, the altruistic urge and inclusive kin selection and all of that, and even in-group bias, which is, you know, has a dark side and a light side, can lead people to be quite concerned about their ancestors and to care a lot about the people in their immediate family and their extended family. And so I think highlighting that can be a way to get at the motivation of people from both sides. I hope you're right, Stephanie. I hope we are indeed um, driven by an altruistic urge. We had um, a show last week with the British journalist, scientific journalist, Rowan Hooper, who has a book about entitled How to Save the World for Just a Trillion Dollars, which figures out what, we, what he would do with a trillion dollars if he could use it to make the world or humanity a better place. If someone gave you a trillion dollars, how would you use it to bring out our altruistic urge, which is obviously a good thing we'd all welcome? Yeah, I mean, I really sympathize with your um, focus today and on the other episodes on the environment. And so to me, the environment is as vulnerable as a child, even though it's very strong and powerful and resilient in some ways right but it can't it can't really defend itself the same way we can attack it right. so you know it's it's an unfair fight and so i think for my money i would rather contribute a lot to you know supporting the environment providing these alternative energy infrastructures so you know and reducing our reliance on fossil fuels and plastics and you know put the money into that so you know it can lift everybody up because so many people say, well, I, you know, I like the environment and all, but I can't do anything about it. It's just these companies and the products they produce. What am I going to do? I can't buy anything else. Um, you know, and so I can't afford solar panels, you know, like solar panels for all, like wind turbines, wherever people are willing to have them, you know, like let's, you know, let's really dig in on more outrageous versions of, 
an approach to the climate crisis and not this like minor incremental baloney that people are currently attempting, which I, I don't think is going to get us there. Should we be representing the planet, the environment, as if it was a child, just like this, for people watching, a mother gorilla holds a baby gorilla? Should we, should we be thinking in almost Darwinian terms about the survival of the planet and thinking of it as our child? I think it's an awesome question and we did study it, right? And so you're like, well, what is the point of studying this altruistic urge? And I'm like, well, we can put it into action, right? So my my thinking at an even perceptual level is that all of this stuff about save the earth, the planet earth is going to backfire because the earth is something that people conceive of as this like timeless giant rock, you know, and it doesn't seem that vulnerable, right? And so if you want us to care and be so moved to care for the earth, I don't think focusing on it as like an image of a planet is a very good idea. And we demonstrated that, you know, people do think of the earth as being timeless and resilient and caring for us rather than us caring for it, right? It is like our nurturer rather than the other way around. And so what we did is we designed some advertisements to see, you know, what people would like. And if you could bring out the vulnerability of the earth through ads without using that iconography. And um, it turns out that people on the left politically, they are more likely naturally to view the earth as vulnerable. So those kind of ads that are already pretty common about like, you know, sad Indians and the trees that are clear cut, th those are effective already with the people on the left who are generally already more pro environmental. But on the right, they have this lower emotional reaction to this devastation. So it's not really striking them as much at this gut level of like, you know, sad concern. And so we made different ads. So we focused on the vulnerability for liberals and we focused on the majestic awe of like, you know, God's earth for the people on the right. And people did like the ads more that we made for them. And they wanted to share the ad more that we made for them. But it turns out even the conservatives gave more money when the earth was cast as vulnerable and in need of urgent immediate help, which is what the altruistic urge predicts. So, you know, I think you can, you can put the theory to the test and actually improve the way people conceive of the situation and how relevant their aid might be. Well, you've convinced me, Stephanie. I'll give you a trillion dollars to <laughs> your you. uh, to your ecological neuroscience lab uh, in Michigan, and you can spend it to benefit humanity and bring out all of our altruism. Congratulations on your book, in all seriousness. Very interesting and brave. It's easy to criticize perhaps even make fun of but it's an important <laughs> certainly an important subject and 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 i know you're doing your best not only to write about it to, to bring it out the altruistic urge why we're driven to help others the book is just out columbia university press congratulations what else stephanie are you reading these days to make oh. yourself wiser well, I just or, finished, or more entertained doesn't have to be wise. Uh, 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 a little of each. I just finished Jonathan Franzen's new book, Crossroads. Which, is it good? Is it classic Franzen? It is. It's much more like the first book, and you know, focuses on the drama of a family, and it hits so many timely topics about you know 
addiction, the family, religion, the conflict among families about religion. You know, I, I just think he does a great job of weaving all these stories elegantly together. And I really enjoyed it. And I, I also read before that the Billie Jean King book, All In, and it details her whole life and not just tennis, but also her fight for civil rights, for LGBTQ+, for AIDS, women in sports. And, you know, it was just awesome. Like, you know, Billie Jean King is a famous tennis player and you might know a little bit about her, but there's no way everyone can already appreciate without reading it the degree to which she has been so passionate and so involved for her whole life. And she just continues to give and give. And I, I just think she's an yeah. amazing human. She uh, certainly is, but Billie Jean King is the model of altruism. Maybe you should do a comparative study of her and Margaret Court, the Australia, her <laughs> Australian rival who was the reverse. Congratulations, yes. Stephanie Preston, again on your new book, The Altruistic Urge, Why We're Driven to Help Others. From your neuroscientific perch in Michigan, Stephanie, who on uh, May 11th, 2022, who runs the world? Who's in charge these days? <laughs> Am I supposed to say you? <laughs> I was thinking, um, we mentioned it before. One, one, you know, kind of concrete thing is the 1%. I'm, I'm distressed at the degree to which the 1% have so much capital and power to influence the shape of our lives. You know, people just feel helpless to do anything against this sea of money. And on the other hand, as a psychologist, I think fear is a little bit too much running the world. You know, people have these aversive gut responses to things that are unfamiliar or different or potentially scary. And instead of just seeking evidence and, you know, putting themselves out there and doing their best, sometimes, you know, I think the approach of people has been really regrettable. And I would like people to take a better approach to fear, you know, to like analyze their own fear before acting on it in a, in a little bit better way. 